Hello, everyone. Welcome to Teaching Matters, a podcast produced by NPR affiliate WOUB Public Media in Athens, Ohio. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth, Dean of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Literature is increasingly called into question the efficacy of using traditional student evaluation instruments as a primary method of documenting teaching effectiveness. Such documentation is vital for faculty seeking promotion, tenure, and positive annual evaluations. Teaching Traditional teaching evaluations are commonly used, but also are potentially subject to a variety of biases that limit their usefulness, accuracy, and reliability. Consequently, many institutions are exploring ways in which faculty can broaden the types of evidence used to demonstrate teaching effectiveness, and that's what we'll be discussing today. At Ohio University, one such effort was undertaken by a subgroup of a university-wide teaching learning assessment committee. That group are, that group are, comprises the guests on the podcast program today. I have Mary Wormshar, Director of Institutional Assessment and Accreditation for the Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine. Camille Geist is Director of Music Therapy and Undergraduate and Graduate Programs in the School of Music. And Deborah Marinsky is an Associate Professor of History at the and the Academic Division Coordinator for Ohio University Southern Campus. And then finally, Katie Hartman, who is Co-Chair of the Teaching Learning Assessment Committee, is the Fox Associate Professor of Marketing um, and is my, um, and, and I'm co chair with her on the Teaching Learning Assessment Committee. All these individuals have been working on this project over the course of this academic year. Thank you all for being a part of the podcast today. Glad to be here. Sure. So one of the things that I want to start with um, so that we can have this dialogue is I'm sure that you know other institutions and, and perhaps even K-12 um, entities are you know, starting to really talk about how teaching effectiveness is documented. So to start that conversation, and, and Katie, I'll ask you to answer first, um, many universities obviously already rely on student evaluations. It's part of what we all grew up with as both students and then and then most of us um, as faculty members. But we know that there are problems associated with traditional student evaluations that you do at the end of the term. You know, based upon your knowledge of this issue, what are some of the problems that might call us into questioning that modality of, of documenting teaching effectiveness? Thank you, Scott. Um, yeah, uh, student evaluations of teaching can be valuable tools for collecting and understanding student perceptions. But as you mentioned, um, uh, research suggests that they are prone to errors, uh, even under normal circumstances. In fact, um, student evaluations of teaching is one of the most well-researched areas in higher academics. Um, uh, examples are low response rates. So low response rates could result in sampling errors where the results of the student evaluations of teaching don't accurately reflect all of the students enrolled. Um, if you think about something uh, similar in business, um, uh, when you think about who uh, fills out evaluations, it tends to be people who are either really, really happy or people who are really, really unhappy. <laughs> so those kind of low response rates could uh, result in errors um, that don't accurately reflect everybody. There's also um, research to talk about halo or horn effects. That is where students' overall positive or negative perceptions, such as liking the course or disliking the course or the professor, either uh, you know being favorable 
of the professor overall or not favorable will influence their perceptions of the individual um, components of the course. Uh, with the COVID-19 environment, um, I believe that there's a lot of concern about recency and recollection biases. That is where students' overall judgments are heavily influenced by what's happened during the second half of the semester. They may not recall or that it may not be as salient to them what happened uh, at the beginning of the semester. These biases are, of course, of no fault of any of the students. Um, they, they, these can be problems that are inherent in many types of survey research where you're asking people to share their perceptions and perceptions themselves can be biased. If I'm, if I'm a student in your class and I generally like the class and like you as an instructor, but, and this is obviously hypothetical, let's say that you're a very disorganized instructor. Um, when I'm filling out the evaluation instrument, I kind of say, I like Dr. Hartman a lot, and so I'm going to give her all fives, which, you know, let's say is the highest possible rating on every single question, even the one about organization, because I'm filling out all the questions with that gestalt sort of um, uh, assumption in mind. Is that an accurate way of describing how some of those biases could work? Absolutely. So if you think about, if you think about how you, your perception of someone, you might say, well, you know, they tried really hard. I like this professor. They were really nice. They were really friendly. Yeah, they're a bit disorganized, but I know they were trying. Um, and so I'm going to give them a benefit of the doubt and I'm going to give them a high evaluations because I, I think of that overall evaluation and I think about how um, that uh, colors or influences my intentions of the person. So I can't, Right. I can't um, uh, accurately, um, and it's again, it's not a fault of the students. This is just sort of you know how we how we think as humans. Psychometric right? biases. Yeah, these yeah. are these are basic psychometric biases, and and you know we could talk about literally dozens of them, um, but uh, right. but yeah. So so the idea is that um, even under the best circumstances, uh, that 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 student evaluations of teaching tend to have some uh, some biases, whether like like you said, whether it's positive through a halo effect or negative through a horn effect. Right. And, and, and this is compounded by the fact that many of these student evaluations are done in a snapshot moment at the end of a term. Um, and yet it's really making the assumption that the student is filling that out over the course of an entire term, which we know is really impossible to do. And so there's several things that goes into these psychometric biases. I've, I've noticed um, an increasing um, number of articles that um, addresses this issue that also starts to bring in the fact that particularly female and faculty of color tend to be negatively impacted. Have, have either of any of the four of you also um, read that literature and want to make a comment on that? I've seen some of that, and they've differentiated between faculty in STEM and non-STEM courses. And depending upon how they look at it and the research design, it can give different perspectives. And some of this gets to They've shown in like studying, I forget how many thousands of courses, the Idea Center does a good job of researching broad data, that um, the ratings on, for example, Calc 1 were inversely related to the grades in Calc 2. And uh, some of it is a lot of the females 
tend to be teaching in the non-STEM areas, which tend to get higher ratings overall than the STEM areas. So I, I think there are so many variables involved in that. <clears throat> and a lot of the research isn't helpful because what does it tell people to do to address that? So particularly for female faculty, they, there needs to be some research to help guide them. And some of it gets back to the research instrument itself. It depends what the research instrument targets. And not all instruments are the same. And those instruments that ask for broad-based questions that get at the effectiveness of the course rather than any personal characteristics tend to see less of the biases creep into those mm -hmm. results. Yeah, very there's, good. Anybody else want to comment? There's also, oh, sorry, sorry, go ahead, Camille. I was just going to say that um, I, I've anecdotally I've heard, and I and I have not read the research on this, but uh, and maybe some of my esteemed colleagues know about this research is also ageism. Um, you know, a younger professor and or someone who is older, there is there biases uh, and and female, <laughs> you know, are there biases with um, that type of thing as well? I'm assuming that there are. I, I haven't read the literature on it, but I'm assuming that there are. Mm -hmm. and, and can you, you are correct, Camille. Uh, okay. There is uh, research that indicates that gender, um, minority status, uh, age, um, but one of the actually strongest um, that is in research is actually attractiveness bias. Wow. So that is that um, if the student finds the um, instructor attractive, right, and I don't mean just physically, but um, attractive in the sense of, you know, similarity, attractiveness in the sense of they fit the stereotype of what a professor should look and be like, um, that that tends to have a really strong uh, impact as well. Um, and so, yeah, there's, there's lots of personal characteristics, but again, not by the fault of the student. These are just, you know, human tendencies um, to think about these things unconsciously. Mm -hmm. I know one of the things that's probably happened at nearly every institution is that what used to be paper pencil evaluations that may or may not have used bubble sheets got transitioned to online evaluations. Um, Debbie, if you, I mean, you've experienced this as we all have at Ohio University. Have you noticed a difference in student evaluations as we made the switch to doing online um, evaluations rather than the paper pencil? I actually have not experienced online evaluations. Ah. So <laughs> the regional campuses did not transition to the online evaluations until this semester uh -huh. with the COVID-19 changes. Oh. Sure, um, but yeah. I, I do have some um, colleagues that have um, repeatedly remarked that online evaluations tend to, um, uh, there tends to be a lower response rate mm -hmm. because students right. are expected to do it on their own. And something that Katie had mentioned before where, you know, students tend to respond most if they like you, if they're happy with the class or if they're unhappy. And I think that has transitioned into the online evaluations as well. Right. You almost you almost notice that there's a bimodal distribution and response rates a lot of times because of that. And and we've noticed that. I mean, I know, you know, in 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 my entire college, we've noticed that the response rates rarely get 
uh, and did that even mid 30%, um, you know, for students and, and more, more often they're lower than that. And we've even seen some instances where it appears that they're in the, you know, at best the high teens. And so, you know, the point, you know, is very good that we've always had an issue with having uh, the, uh, the correct sample, at least when it was paper and pencil, there were some obligation for the student to be there at least and maybe fill it out. But with online, we've seen that um, go down quite a bit. Um, so we've, we've, we've spent some time uh, sort of talking about what the problems are associated with um, using course evaluations and, and some of the biases that can be pre present with them. Camille, what, uh, you know, to, to start off another track of this conversation, mm -hmm. if we know that there are problems with it, why would we still want to use them? Like, what, what's the case that would be made for continuing to use student evaluations of any type? I, I just think it's so interesting that you asked me that um, because I've had my ups and downs with these student evaluations and I might have my biases going in. And so when I saw that, you know, the potential benefits, well, how can I address that? And I, I can address that first as a faculty member who has gone through all the phases of promotion and tenure and just recently the student evaluation process for a professor. And I, at every, but every semester, you know, I got to look at those evaluations and see what they say. And, and, but every semester I learn about the developmental level of the students. And so when I look at them, I, get, I, I have to say, okay, I understand. I don't know who this is. I probably could guess by some of the specifics that they gave in the comments, but I go to those things and say, you know, we like the professor. However, this would be beneficial for the course. And those things have helped me. It really has helped me. And 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 why we're using it as the university wide system, I may maybe it's because there's there's these two parts to it. There's this quantitative data driven part and there's this qualitative part. And it's a chance to get both. And and students maybe um, the, I'm not sure about all the history of this, but I'm guessing that at a time students didn't have a voice. And so here is a chance for a student to have a voice. And this is the system that we've come up with. And it's something that can be monitored and distributed by the university. And so maybe there's some ease there. I think that we've become so diversified and, and I think the research about student evaluations is coming out that we need to pay attention to it and not get rid of it possibly, but maybe figure out a way to enhance those so we can still get that student perspective, find other ways to get that student perspective, but know, but know that they're, what they what they I mean, I value what they say. I really do. But I can also tell when they're mad about something, you know, and I and so the, mm -hmm. the challenge for me as a faculty is to see that as it is. And then the challenge for the people who are reviewing me is to see that at, for what it is. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. So if we um, switch gears mm -hmm. again and um, think about our specific situation at Ohio University, um, Katie, you are not only a co-chair of this Teaching Learning Assessment Committee, but you also um, are a department chair, and you also um, have significant experience with our faculty senate. So you wear a lot of different hats. Um, what were some of the issues that um, gave rise at Ohio University that prompted our committee to want to look at this issue in more detail, and and I'm thinking that this is probably common across universities. But you know, what were some of the things that caused us to want to tackle this from from your perspectives? 
Sure. So um, the conversation about how to better document teaching effectiveness has been happening across the university for years. So many departments, colleges, units already offer suggestions for alternative ways to document <laughs> teaching effectiveness. The problem is at the university level that student evaluations of teaching is the only tool that's actually outlined and described uh, in the faculty handbook. So um, for this semester, as we know, the teaching and learning environment um, has been quite unusual. Um, it required rapid and unexpected transitions to fully remote uh, instruction as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. So in response to these changes, um, the university made several modifications that included a later course drop date, options for satisfactory grade conversions at the undergraduate level. Um, the thinking was that these sort of unusual circumstances could yield even more uneven course evaluation data, either from low response rates or the biases that we've already talked about. Um, so given the circumstances, the student evaluations of teaching, you know, for faculty may be unreliable for understanding the overall quality of teaching. Now, as Camille said, that doesn't mean that you know, we didn't want to have student feedback. Um, in fact, you know, as a department chair, I, I actually use, um, when I when I review the faculty in my department every year, I look for, you know, the really highs and the really lows um, in terms of the averages, as well as look for the distributions um, and response rates, but also more importantly, the feedback. As Camille said, that written comments uh, that could alert us to things that we're doing really well or things that we could improve on. So the university did decide to continue to collect student evaluations of teaching in order to provide students with that opportunity to provide feedback and uh, for faculty um, and department chairs to use that feedback um, uh, to inform what, what moves forward. Yet, we also suspended the use of the university's um, requirement um, that this semester uh, that we uh, require faculty to use these as part of their annual evaluations and promotion and tenure because of the potential bias um, and the unusual circumstance. And then in addition to, so the, the COVID-19 issue was a very specific exigence that, you know, gave need for this. We were having these discussions throughout the entire year. What were some other, I mean, you know, going to the other three people, um, the other three people on the podcast right now, what, what were some other reasons from your perspective that caused you to want to be a part of a discussion um, about broadening how we document teaching effectiveness? Well, I'd like to start, be, um, in, I'm in the College of Fine Arts, and um, we are evolving in, we, as far as teaching, uh, documenting teaching effectiveness. I believe that our faculty, um, our senior faculty are on board with figuring out ways to do this. However, the guidance, we are coming up with ways that we think that would work for alternate ways of documenting teaching effectiveness. However, having the university as a guide saying, yes, these are the ways you do it, it would help us to really solidify our ideas that are for our college. And we, even within our college, how this is documented is different. And so I think that, um, but we still rely heavily on those student valuations. And it's I, at going through the process as a faculty member, sometimes I needed help with figuring out how else could I document my effectiveness. And then when I did document my effectiveness in alternate ways, 
it that sometimes it was received well and sometimes it wasn't. It's like, well, that's great, but let's look at your evaluations. So I think that those are the problems that I encountered. And I was like, I wonder if I can be a part of a solution or at least, <laughs> you know, on a bigger scale, on a university level to help this for because it can't be just my college or just my department that this is happening. But I don't know. So I think that's why I wanted to join. I can. Debbie, Mary. I can go next. Yeah, go ahead. Um, as the academic division coordinator on my campus, um, I have to do the annual evaluations for faculty and then also write the letters for promotion and tenure. And the regional campus faculty, we are more teaching faculty than research faculty. And so one of the things that I really struggled with in writing those letters and writing those recommendations is just what we've been talking about, the emphasis on the student teaching evaluations and faculty not having these other ideas or um, resources to show them or even teach them how they can improve in their teaching, which would also help them with promotion and tenure and help them with their annual evaluations. And then the other reason that I really got involved um, was because of the whole One Ohio and integration of the regional campuses into their home departments in Athens. And I wanted to make sure that I could provide the faculty on my campuses, uh, my campus specifically, as well as the rest of the regional campuses, more detailed information on how they could demonstrate their teaching effectiveness and help them as they transition into the Athens departments as well. Um, Mary, um, you know, thinking about, so we've been talking a lot about how teaching evaluations get used in promotion and tenure um, decisions for faculty, annual evaluations of faculty. You wear a hat in our medical college that's more broadly connected to program assessment and accreditation issues. Are there ways in which teaching effectiveness um, gets folded into some of those broader um, assessment-driven issues like that, that that you've experienced? Yes, and I think keeping it in perspective, it's useful from an administrative perspective. If your goal is for continuous quality improvement to identify areas to help faculty on too. So if a number of faculty seem to be getting low ratings in an area, it helps you allocate resources and faculty development for those individuals who would like to improve their performance in there. No one wants to get a bad teaching evaluation. For accreditation purposes, yeah, we're expected to demonstrate a commitment to quality improvement and to demonstrate that we're committed to quality instruction. These serve as one element, but we would never consider that sufficient from an evaluation perspective. I mean, we would look for data triangulation on any evaluation target, whether it be teaching performance or anything else that we look at in higher ed. So I think that's been the driver behind the movement is as people became more aware that that's only one element at what makes a faculty person effective in achieving learning outcomes. And that not only that, certain disciplines will get tend to get lower ratings but it's not because of the faculty as much as the motivation of the student and the complexity of the content. So 
I, I think there's a real movement to recognize the complexity of teaching effectiveness and be more broad-based from administrative as well as an accreditation perspective. And I think as well as the faculty are becoming more informed about how it can help them improve their teaching effectiveness too. And so if we're going to broaden it, um, obviously we need more tools than just the end of term student evaluations. Um, Debbie, you've actually been doing a project independent from the Teaching Learning Assessment Committee over the course of um, the last several months. I don't know what the exact time frame is, but you've actually been doing research on the different ways in which various universities have broadened how teaching effectiveness is documented. Do you want to comment on, you know, if, if you know, recognizing that student evaluations is one of those, what does the diversity of options actually kind of look like given the perspective that you have on it now? Um, so what I, what I did was I looked at quite a few universities and their teaching and learning centers and the various um, information and resources and ways that they categorized teaching effectiveness and part of the reason I did that, one is to just define what teaching effectiveness is. I mean, that's a really broad uh, phrase within itself. And so I created this um, definition off of these university uh, websites, but also off of some um, articles that um, I received through the Teaching Learning Assessment Center last year. And so I created these um, categories that focus on um, different stages of teaching and then looked at the university websites and plugged in specific examples that they provided into these different categories so that you could provide faculty with um, a, a wide array of different activities that they can do to support student success and student learning and improve their teaching effectiveness. So for example, anything that they do in preparation for their courses, not just designing the class, not just creating assessments and learning outcomes, but participating in any type of a, a training, whether it's um, a faculty community or whether it's an online training on new technolo technologies for the classroom, um, anything that they can do in order to support their students in their in their courses. Um, that's just one example. And then there's what you actually do inside the classroom, how you are what you are actually implementing, um, how you're grading uh, in the classrooms. And then another one was a, a, a broader approach, anything that you do outside of the classroom. Because as educators, it's not just before, it's not just during, but it's also outside and after that classroom. Um, how we're interacting with students through advising and mentoring, um, taking students to conferences, also how we are interacting with our colleagues and how we're interacting with the community um, and with pr the profession as a whole is also important to um, teaching effectiveness. You know, uh, just to build on that, so um, in at Ohio University, we have a group of faculty called instructional faculty, which are not tenure eligible, but they are eligible for promotion and also longer term contracts is a simple way to define that. You're all familiar with that, but I wanted to set that stage for other listeners. and. Um, 
so interestingly, because they are instructional faculty, when you look at how they divide their workload, um, by definition in the faculty handbook, the research component that tenure track faculty would have does not exist for them. And so they are not expected and nor can they be um, rewarded technically for engaging in any type of research. However, um, in my college, and I suspect there's versions of this that might happen in other colleges as well, I'm thinking particularly Camille in, in, um, in um, College yeah. of Fine Arts, where a faculty member that's an instructional faculty member teaching in a creative area, like in my area, that could be photography, it could be um, uh, um, visual communication, et cetera, um, music production, those faculty have to engage in creative activity in order to stay current. And so as a dean, when I've been talking with them about documenting teaching effectiveness, I will have the conversation with them that says, look, you can't count this as research because even though your tenure track colleagues would do that, that's not something that you can be promoted on. However, this is intimately tied to what you teach. And so you being able to say that if you're a music production faculty member and you've um, done um, uh, uh, records or albums for several bands in the state of Ohio, you know, that's something that is directly applicable to your role as a faculty member teaching students how to do that. And so interesting conversations about how activity, and, and this is the point that I think you were making so well, Debbie, is that activity that could be categorized in one area is also important in another area and that there's not black and white distinctions in how we should be documenting that, which I think is really interesting. Um, so that um, we can move forward just a little bit, because I think that was a really good explanation, Deb, Deb, Debbie, of how there's a broader way that you can think about teaching effectiveness. If, if we were to broaden that as a university and if other universities were to do that, but I'm thinking specifically about ours as, a, as an example right now, there are challenges to doing that. And some of those challenges are political. Some of those challenges are just um, having the mechanisms in place. But as you think about what some of the barriers are, uh, Camille, I want to start with you so you can wear your hat as a faculty member yeah. here um, that's been through several processes. What do you think some of the hurdles are? In other words, why are we still only really emphasizing student teaching evaluations? Why have we not already expanded it? And what are some of those hurdles and how do you think we can overcome well, those? Well, I was making notes as Debbie was talking. Oh, my gosh, Debbie, you're re you need to make sure that we um, get this, get the, your publication or your presentation out for everybody because it was very eye-opening for me. And a thought came to mind as she was talking about the culture of, of um, viewing how we determine or demonstrate teaching effectiveness needs to change. And when, I, when I'm talking about the culture, I'm talking about you know, how we think about it as a faculty within our own departments, but then as a university. And to me, there has, I mean, it can start at your department. I mean, I think it's both. It goes up and up to the higher level and from higher level down. And I think it's this vacillating culture change that we have that we have to instill. You know, if, if faculty in, in one college, for example, in the School of Music, I happened to be the promotion and tenure chair when we were reviewing our documents about determining teaching effectiveness for our instructional faculty. And and like you said, Scott, there there's people who are extremely wonderful musicians and performing is what they do. However, they, do they get credit for that? No, but 
what they do is informing their teaching. And so we wrote a big section on how your professional, what is defined as creative activity in a tenure line is your teaching effectiveness activity outside of the classroom. So I'm, I'm with you on that. But so there's this, so we at the, at the department level have to have, have to promote a culture of looking at things beyond the teaching evaluations. And that's not just through when they get, when mentoring somebody on how to write their dossier, that's something that we have to instill in various ways, you know, through presentation, through talking about it at faculty meetings, doing all that kind of stuff. But no matter what we think needs to happen, if it's not supported or valued at the, at the promotion and tenure administrative level or at the university level, we can have these creative ideas, but if it's not supported to go forward, it doesn't matter because of, of the hierarchy and how we are evaluated to get that promotion or to get that tenure. And so I think these processes need to be happening at the same time. And I really think that the university from the president down, need to make a statement and say, this is a core value of how we determine teaching effectiveness. And that way, it can happen at the lower end, I shouldn't say lower end, at the faculty end, where it matters the most for people's livelihoods. And, you know, as far as this process of promotion and tenure, but also their livelihood is being impactful in their classrooms and impactful Mm -hmm. to the students and at the top and then we meet in the middle and then all of a sudden we have a culture of seeing that it's there are alternative ways and I don't even like the word alternative there are other ways and more robust more robust ways and it, it can really inform and to me that teaching evaluation part is just a piece I mean that student evaluation part sorry it's just a piece and and it I don't know if it's how big of a puzzle piece it is, you know, but it shouldn't be the whole puzzle. And then we add things on the edges, you know, to me, it's it's all together. So you got me on my soapbox, Debbie, your research has gotten so excited. <laughs> but but to me, it's that culture change. And it's and there and we have to come at it from different ways. It can't just be the president saying, I agree with this. If people down don't believe in it, the faculty have to own it as well. So there, there are two specific types of teaching situations that I just want to ask for quick answers about, about how maybe we could take this expanded uh, perspective on documenting effectiveness and, and think about ways that we could do that. So one situation is in what I'm going to call high-impact experiential learning. So that could be problem-based learning, place-based learning, whatever you want to you know shape it as, but, it, but it's a high-impact teaching and learning experience. Um, that clearly to me is a situation where just doing end of term student evaluations would would not suffice to demonstrate all that went into that. What recommendations would any of you have for a faculty member that did a course built upon a premise like that and how they might document their teaching effectiveness in that situation? Any ideas? So uh, this is Katie. Um, as Debbie mentioned, uh, the idea of the framework of using um, input, process, and outcomes. So faculty can think about what is the input um, into building a high-impact teaching practice, whether that's faculty training, course design, course organization, assignment creation, assignment develop, the process um, such as 
teamwork, mentoring, coaching, delivery, and then I think most importantly are alternative types of outcomes. So um, in the College of Business, um, which is where uh, I am, um, we, we talk a lot about um, assessed achievement of student learning outcomes. So what was the course designed to do in terms of learning and what were the assessment of those achieved student learning outcomes? We also do student perceptions of learning rather than student perceptions of teaching. So mm. you ask students, what do you think you learned out of this course, especially if the course is already tagged as something like critical thinking or teamwork skills or quantitative reasoning. You ask the students um, about those specific uh, learning outcomes and what they believe that they gained um, in terms of those learning outcomes. Or you can other, look at other student-centric metrics, um, success metrics such as, you know, for certain, for certain professions that might be, um, you know, uh, pass rates on um, national placement exams. It could be, um, uh, you know, uh, even even to the point of like looking at grades. Um, so how well students did, not necessarily overall grade in the course, but how well student uh, evaluations were for specific tasks or assignments. Mm -hmm. Very good. Um, second example, um, you know, there's there's not many opportunities for this, but faculty value the opportunity to be able to team teach. And Mary, I know in in the osteopathic medical college that there's a lot of team teaching that goes on. But to to some extent, that that's something that does happen across the university. What would you recommend? I mean, maybe it's the same recommendations, but what would you recommend for a faculty member involved in a team teaching situation to be able to do um, a you know a more robust job of documenting? the effectiveness of them, you know, their course? Well, their contributions to the course, because sometimes that's hard to tell who did what. And, and sometimes in a team te taught scenario, one faculty person may take the lead in doing the development for a specific component and another one may do it for some, some other component. So to do that, and then also, at least for our applications, we're targeting didactic teaching as well as clinical teaching and a lot of the clinical evaluations really focus on the effort the faculty person put forward to improve the students thinking and problem-solving skills and I think in those cases the faculty some of them develop really nice scenarios and they should really um, get credit for thinking through how to solve thinking problems. I mean, as the U.S. has moved from an instructional paradigm to a learning paradigm from a faculty perspective, I think we need to keep track of those learning paradigm things that, that the faculty do that go beyond just delivering instruction. Thanks, Mary. Um, so just to tie a bow around things, Katie, I'm going to come back to you to um, uh, tackle one last quick question. So. Um, Camille kind of alluded to the fact that in order to actually affect change in broadening how teaching effectiveness is documented, it really takes action on all levels. You and I are the co-chairs of the Teaching Learning Assessment Committee, but since I'm the host, I'm going to put all this burden on you. What, what do you think our next steps are to try to be able to broaden this discussion to an entire campus community that involves administrators at the executive level all the way to faculty members at the grassroots level? 
thanks. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I think that um, I think that what we have started is an excellent start to talking about um, frameworks and how we can broaden our uh, broaden our understanding um, about uh, or even brainstorm ideas about how we document teaching effectiveness through. Uh, input processes and outcomes or whatever framework we decide. I think that we have a really strong start on that when we um, are talking about what, what work this committee has already done. I think to move forward, we want to develop that in, into um, more of a widespread um, uh, document uh, or report or suggestions that we can then get some feedback and endorsement from faculty senate, from the provost's office, from the president's office. Um, part of the the challenge, though, of course, is that um, we have a pretty decentralized university. We we um, tend to do things um, quite at the college level rather than um, uh, more centrally, which is great. Um, so, but at the same time, it becomes more of a challenge to figure out what works in all situations. Um, and and there is some argument to be made that certain kinds of recommendations could um, could be a resource burden um, where, you know, things, uh, faculty are already doing a lot. Um, and so we want to make sure that at the same time, we're not asking them to do more than what they can effectively handle or effectively do. And so I think that um, uh, a report that provides suggestions but not necessarily mandates um, uh, would would be helpful to faculty, especially if they could contextualize it for their own disciplines and what is appropriate for their own disciplines and their own courses. I, that's a great point that you make that if you're doing this and it's more robust, that is more work and there's no question about that. And so then the trade-off is how much is too much. Um, I think that's a really great point. And we will conquer this. We will get this discussion going around campus. And it's been great to work with the four of you and um, one other um, person that was not able to join us on the podcast. But I really appreciate um, the four of you joining me today and being a part of this discussion. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thanks. This is great. Thank you. And thank you for listening to Teaching Matters. This program is produced by WOUB Public Media. You can always listen at woub.org slash listen. We're also available through all the popular podcasting apps like Google Play, iTunes, and NPR One. You can contact staff of the podcast with ideas, questions, or comments through our Facebook page. Just go to Facebook, search for Teaching Matters Podcast, and send us a message if you would like to contact us. Our audio engineer and associate producer is Adam Rich. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth. Have a great day, and thanks for listening.